Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. If you're a baseball bargain hunter, we have something for you in this show. There's a new interactive tool designed to tell you in real time how prices at various Major League ballparks compare for tickets, concessions, souvenirs, all of it. SeatGeek does the heavy lifting based on data they receive. Chris Lydon will introduce us to their baseball cost estimator. More and more NFL teams are seeing the wisdom of the old adage, there's no place like home. The result? Fewer NFL training camps at remote locations. What's driving this trend? The Bleacher Report's Brad Gagnon tells us what's going on and why. And Stadium's USA's Mark Medoran explains why White Sox pitcher Chris Sale threw back his throwback uniform. But first... Here's the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, could the Staples Center in L.A. turn into a one-basketball-team arena? Reports out of Southern California indicate Clippers owner Steve Ballmer has begun exploring potential sites for a new arena. One NBA source said the focus of their search is L.A.'s west side. The Clippers have been co-tenants at Staples Center with the Lakers and the NHL's Kings since the 1999-2000 season. It was a full-court press displayed by the City of Las Vegas this week. They tried to convince the Southern Nevada Tourism Committee that the best place for a new domed football stadium is Cashman Center the current location of the city's minor league baseball team. The site has been criticized by some because of its distance from the Las Vegas Strip. Organizers continue to work with the Oakland Raiders on plans for a 65,000-seat venue. The leaders of the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta say they are close to choosing a demolition contractor for the Georgia Dome. The process of salvaging materials from the Falcons' current home precedes demolition which is expected to happen by the fall of 2017. The goal remains to have the dome site available for parking and tailgating for the college football championship game slated for January of 2018. The Pro Football Hall of Fame unveiled its new immersive theater exhibit this week, along with tours of newly renovated Tom Benson Hall of Fame Stadium. The new features are part of the $500 million, 90-acre development of the Hall of Fame campus. The theater allows fans to experience a locker room atmosphere with water coolers, laundry hampers, and open lockers. And Beaver Stadium, the home of the Penn State Nittany Lions, remains the second largest stadium in the country at more than 106,000. But that venue may be getting smaller. It's all part of a renovation project that will feature bigger, wider seats, restroom and concessions makeovers, and wider entryways. Beaver Stadium is one of eight stadiums in the country with a capacity of more than 100,000. Bill, that is the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. 
Have you ever wondered about the cost of baseball tickets, particularly if you're thinking of attending a game and perhaps you're looking at several? You know, here in Chicago, we're only 90 miles from Milwaukee. It's not that far to get there. How do the costs compare? Well, now there's an answer to that. And it's across the board and it's provided by the good folks at SeatGeek. So you can compare ticket prices and other things related to attending a game across the board with a wonderful new app that SeatGeek has. We're going to talk about this, what it does. It's called the Baseball Cost Estimator. Our guest is Chris Leiden, a content analyst with SeatGeek. He's visiting via digital audio from New York. Chris, great to visit. Congratulations on this new gadget. Yeah, you know, we've always thought that going to a, a sporting event, you know, baseball game in this sense, uh, you know, it, it costs more than just your ticket, right? You've got to pay for food. You've got to pay for parking. And and there's a lot of decisions that go into going to a game. Do you want to stop at the bar before the game so you don't pay for beer at the game? Do you want to, you know, take the metro there, the subway there so you don't have to pay for parking? And so we kind of thought it would be interesting, you know, oftentimes you'll see comparisons of like, which teams have the most expensive tickets, but we wanted to kind of take it to the next step and include, you know, parking, beer, water bottles, hot dogs, so that fans could really get a good idea of how much they're actually going to spend. Um, and, and this has been done a few times before, but what we really did to kind of try to take it to the next level is, is make it interactive. So, you know, if, if you go right now to seekgeek.com slash baseball dash cost, you can use a calculator to basically figure out exactly how much money you should budget for, you know, the next team's game that you want to go to. Oh, boy. I would assume that success in baseball nets out as higher ticket prices. Uh, That would seem to me to be the basic axiom and probably the first thing that you would learn if you check that out. Is that actually true? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you're Chicago based. The Cubs are probably a perfect example of that. Not only, you know, higher ticket prices this year overall, but just higher prices kind of as they've gone throughout the season. Um, You know, we're seeing right now a team like the Cleveland Indians who earlier in the season had pretty inexpensive ticket prices compared to the rest of the league. You know, they're now one of the better teams in baseball and, and their ticket prices reflect that. So, you know, I think winning basically drives demand more than anything. Um, you know, you could be a small market team, but if, if you're putting together a lot of wins and looking like a World Series contender, you'll, you'll certainly pick up a lot of fans who want to get to your games. Mm-hmm. And is it also fair to say that those cities which have a high cost of living, a New York, a Chicago, a San Francisco, say, for example, Boston, is that also reflected? The baseball prices pretty well follow that? Absolutely. Um, I I think we see that in most sports where, you know, the New York teams tend to have just more expensive tickets, more expensive food, more expensive drink at the ballpark. One thing about baseball that's kind of interesting is that the two LA teams actually have really pretty good deals compared to the rest of the league. Um, You know, I I think the Dodgers have one of the largest stadiums, if not the the biggest stadium. And I think that because of that, it, it drives ticket prices down. And then they've also, both teams have kind of done a good job of not overpricing their food and drink. And so in most cases in the New York markets in Chicago, you know, they are more in demand because there's just more people living there. But L.A. is kind of the outlier where you can really get to a to an Angels or a Dodgers game for a, a good deal. This is all done, as I understand it, on a live basis. Where does the information come from where you can go ahead and dynamically update it as that data changes? Yes. Yeah, so the, the ticket pricing is actually based on the current price of the next 10 games on SeatGeek.com. So we basically, for every single team, we're taking the average for each each of the 10 games 
you know, averaging that up and then putting that price out there. So one thing to keep in mind is, you know, for say the, the Chicago Cubs right now, it says that the average ticket's $108. You can get tickets for much below that, but you can also spend a lot more than that. So we take the average for the tickets, but like you mentioned that way, it's, it's a live feed. And, you know, as teams, like I mentioned, as the Indians do well, you know, their prices get driven up. They've moved way up the rankings. And, and, you know, as teams struggle, they can move down the rankings. You know, one thing we do keep in mind is if a fan gets to a ballpark and they're like, hey, soft drinks are actually now, you know, $3 as opposed to 250 we certainly want them to reach out to us and let us know because mm-hmm. we, we want to keep this as, as accurate and up-to-date as possible. Now, tell us again how to get this tool. And for those who are installing it and are going to get used to using it, I assume it's pretty simple to use. Even some guy who uh, is not a uh, computer uh, expert by a long shot with a smartphone still can handle it, I gather. Yeah, absolutely. So it'll work both on your mobile device and on your desktop to get there. All you have to do is go to SeatGeek.com slash baseball dash cost. And then there's basically three parts of it. There's a part at the top that ranks all the teams. You can click through each category. It'll move them around to show how they rank in each category. The second item's a calculator. So let's say, you know, you, you're a big hot dog fan. You're going to have four hot dogs at the game. You can adjust it to see how much <laughs> it's going to cost with four hot dogs. And then at the bottom, something, you know, people in Chicago might like is, mm-hmm. is you can compare two teams side by side. So, you know, you can put the White Sox against the Cubs there and see how they do compare across prices. You know, I know the Cubs have much more expensive tickets, but, you know, the the Cubs also have more expensive beer, but less expensive sodas. So, you know, you can kind of uh, compare two teams, maybe your favorite team and a rival team in that bottom section. Chris Lydon is our guest. He is a content analyst at SeatGeek. And of course, I'm a great believer in analyzing content. Stand by. We have more of it coming up for you. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Recently on one of our Stadiums USA programs, you heard the opinion that NFL training camps are one of the best values possible for getting close to players and getting close to the environment of NFL football. And you can see it all over the country. Not that long ago, we saw the old cheese league where you'd have a lot of teams up in Wisconsin, places like uh, Platteville, uh, Mankato, Minnesota, Uh, Other places like Smithfield Road Island, and uh, there were fans all over the place. Teams were all over the place, but now they seem to be consolidating on their home turf. It's an interesting trend. We're going to visit with Brad Gagnon of the Bleacher Report, who covers the National Football League for them. You've also caught his work with CBS Sports, Deadspin, and The Guardian. Brad, you dug into this a little bit. Tell us about the forces that are at play here uh, that are making more and more teams uh, decide uh, that there's no place like home. 
Well, you know, it's a, it's a myriad factors, and it is different from team to team to a degree. But, you know, I think the tipping point of late was, you know, the collective bargaining agreement in 2011 when it was up. A lot of teams didn't know what would be happening with training camps or if they'd be taking place at all. Of course, the deal was struck in uh, in the summertime just before camps, but at that point, a lot of teams hadn't been able to plan for uh, making the move, and uh, several teams made the move home at that point. Several made it uh, a little bit after that, and several made it just before that, but that was sort of kind of the breaking point about half a decade ago. We had a you know, a point uh, just before the turn of the decade where well, close to 90% of the NFL's teams were having, you know, uh, their, their training camps remotely on the road. Mm-hmm. Only uh, three, in fact, that weren't. The Miami Dolphins, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Cleveland Browns in 1999. Um, and now here we are, you know, 2016, and there's only really a few teams lingering left um, that continue to you know, to take training camp on their own, it's a shame, and and a lot of them admit that they lose out on the nostalgia and the ability to spread their tentacles a little bit in terms of reaching new fans and fans that aren't located right within the cities in which they play. But also, you got to consider, and you mentioned this off the top, that this is a chance for fans to get as close as possible to a lot of their favorite players and coaches and, and to really watch these teams play. And it was almost a, a little bit unfair that a lot of the fans living in those cities that paid for season tickets primarily and, and, and went to the games were robbed of that opportunity because the team would be two or three hours away for training camp and they, back at home in, in the month of August, wouldn't maybe have the ability to make that trek out there. So, you know, there's there's winners and losers in every transition and in this case you know obviously the the, uh, the losing uh, the, those losing out of the fans that are located in these sort of remote locations uh, unless you're lucky enough to be one of those teams that hasn't uh, moved obviously the Pittsburgh Steelers haven't moved in a, a heck of a long time I believe they've never been anywhere but Latrobe um, and then we've also had teams that you know the Green Bay Packers I believe 95 years Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chicago Bears, 86 years. I'm just pulling up the article here. Yeah, the Colts are 69 years. I mean, these teams uh, um, have been happily um, away from home for many years, and they've created a, tradi- uh, created a tradition there. Of course, those are sort of the more traditional um, uh, old-school franchises with very traditional old-school fan bases, and, uh, and they're very satisfied with the idea of, of you know, kind of setting up camp away. Well, there is also, of course, the advantage of being able to reach out into more distant communities. There is a firm base of Dallas Cowboys support in that pocket west of L.A. Thousand Oaks is about 40 miles out. Now they're, they've been in Oxnard, and that's about 60 miles out. The Cowboys travel further than anybody else or have traveled further than anybody else, and, and they've got a footprint now, and I imagine a lot of kids who you know grow, grew up uh, going to Oxnard to watch the Cowboys participate in at least part of their training camp there, um, developed a, a, you know, um, an appreciation for the Cowboys that probably won't go away regardless of where they hold camp the rest of you know, their, these people's lives. Brad, uh, years ago, I had the great privilege of, from a, from a broadcast standpoint, of actually covering some camps, and these were distant camps, so literally, uh, the teams would invite you to come up, and basically, you'd be in the same space where the players were, you'd go to the same mess hall, and one of the things that I noticed is that the players had a lot of time and space and a leisure type of time to go ahead and get to know each other 
better. I think that's always been one of the strongest arguments for a separate camp. What's your thought on that, and are we losing that? Yeah, we are, and that's that is the one shame of this whole. That's the big shame of this whole thing. In addition to the access for fans outside of the cities, um, is that yeah, I mean, especially for the rookies, right? I mean, a lot of these vets have gotten to know each other, and I also understand that a lot of these vets have families at home, and it's not you know they they already have a, a um, you know a bit of a rough travel schedule in the fall and potentially the winter based on how deep their teams go in terms of having to be gone basically every weekend and having to be at work, especially if you're a quarterback or a a bookworm in terms of a player for 10, 12, 14 hours a day uh, throughout the week. And so, you know, to have to be pulled away from your kids, a lot of them have young kids, these veterans and, and your wife and, uh, and whoever else in, you know, late July and not return essentially until late August. I mean, it's difficult. I get that. And a lot of teams have done it where the veterans have reported for a certain number amount of time and the rookies have stayed there throughout, which is, a nice system as well, I think. Obviously, I think both systems are dying because we're seeing fewer camps on the road every year. But I think the rookies are, again, the true benefactors. I think the rookies also, it's a way to kind of keep them comfortable early on in that transition because, as you mentioned, you're sort of in a mess hall in a college-type environment. Well, that's where they were for the last three or four years. So um, it, it sort of feels like you're almost at home. You've kind of just gone from one college to another um, for at least that first month of transition and you're hanging out with a bunch of other rookies, not just the other six or seven, you know, guys that your team drafted, but, you know, another dozen or so undrafted free agents, 20 of the 90 guys are basically rooks. And then, you know, another 10 or 15 are, are second or third year guys. And so you're basically surrounded by guys your age um, who all, you know, you're all recently in college. Um, and you have a comfortable environment where you feel like you're not sort of an alien, uh, which is probably the case for a lot of these guys when they all of a sudden jump into these state-of-the-art facilities, although a lot of the colleges have those too now as well. Brad, I want to thank you very much for the visit. It's a fascinating topic. Great job with it. That's why we wanted to invite you on. Brad Gagnon, our guest, who covers the National Football League for Bleacher Report. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Hey, it's time to talk shop once again. And in steps Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. We remind you, Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Be sure to check it out for yourself at stadiumsusa.com. And also, you can listen to podcasts of Stadiums USA Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and subscribe to us on iTunes. Of course, Listen to us each week right here on Yahoo Sports Radio. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at 
Stadiums USA, and you can also check us out on Facebook. And this is one of the big stories right here, Mark, a bizarre story involving our dearly beloved Southsiders and a pitcher by the name of Chris Sale, who started cutting up the 1976 throwback uniforms, particularly his. Uh, A very interesting story, and uh, I want you to take us into this on a fairly deep dive, because I only heard the surface story, so I am... I'm curious that we're going to wear this. There is a stadium angle, of course, because throwback uniforms were part of a U.S. cellular field ballpark giveaway. So that puts us on it. Let's dig into this. What was your take? Well, Bill, this is a very strange incident. <laughs> no, it occurred last Saturday. White Sox all-star starting pitcher Chris Sale did not want to pitch in a specific throwback uniform. The White Sox had selected that uniform for uh, one of their throwback days. All the ball clubs run throwback days where they kind of honor the history of their club and mm-hmm. show some of the uniforms of the day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll honor a former World Series team or whatever. The White Sox decided to have this special promotion, and it included giveaways of this team-licensed merchandise. And the jerseys that the fans got in the stands were going to match what the team had that day on the field. A great idea. Chris Sale lost his mind, decided to cut up the team's throwback jerseys in the clubhouse, uh, the ones they were scheduled to wear that day. All the promotions are designed to increase attendance and sell team-licensed merchandise. That's why they do it. I see errors on both sides of this story. Mm. Number one, I see errors on the club side where they should have done everything possible to eliminate the conflict with the pitcher. In other words, it's coming out of all-star break. They probably could have designed the rotation a little better so that this jersey wouldn't fall on Chris Sale's day. That would have eliminated the problem. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you're a major league pitcher. You're being paid millions of dollars each year to play the game. you got to wear whatever uniform they tell you to wear, dude. You make more in a year than most Americans uh, make in their lifetime times 10. So there's errors on both sides of this story. But in the end, it does make the ball club look pretty sad when you got this whole promotion set up. You have 20,000 of these items to give away, and then the team doesn't wear the matching jerseys. So it was really a mess and one that got national attention and certainly not on the good side. Yeah, indeed. And financially, it had to be a disaster too, Mark. Hey, what about this item here, the All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game? The league has announced that they are pulling it out of Charlotte. This is obviously a huge story, tremendous financial ramifications, and everything else that's associated with it. Take us behind it. The Charlotte community is reacting quite negatively to the news that the NBA has decided to move the NBA All-Star Game in 2017 to another site. Michael Jordan is likely very unhappy about the change in plans. And Bill, since you were Michael's play-by-play man his rookie year, Mm -hmm. uh, have you talked to MJ about the decision yet? No, I have not, but I would imagine he's not too happy, although he seems supportive in a way at the same time. He does recognize there's a problem there from everything that I've read. Businesses around Charlotte are measuring the economic loss of the All-Star Game in the millions. The city of Charlotte estimated the economic impact of the game at about $100 million. Mm -hmm. The Hornets front office has invested thousands of man hours 
in planning for the All-Star event, and that's all gone to waste. On the plus side, the NBA has promised the game could be played there in 2019 if the discriminatory North Carolina legislation is changed or canceled. And other performers besides basketball players have also canceled scheduled concerts in that Charlotte Time Warner Cable Arena. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ramifications of that law, and uh, most of them are economic at this point. I hope you saw the words of Commissioner Swafford of the ACC saying now the ACC is going to have to look at this. So if they think that it's just an NBA problem, they are crazy. And you still have the NCAA sitting out there, and they're not happy. And they have 22 NCAA championships in the state of North Carolina currently scheduled. So this is a big, big problem. Mark, I guess we have a good indication of the love that NBA fans in Sacramento have for former Commissioner David Stern. This is really something. Fill us in. The Sacramento Kings will open the 2016-17 season in their new arena, and they are thankful to David Stern for helping them get that new arena built. The brand-new Golden One Center is located uh, right in the city center. Uh, To thank Commissioner Stern, the Kings have submitted for approval the name of a new road leading to the center, and it's to be called the 500 David Stern Walk. It's a fitting honor for a man who led the NBA and helped keep the Kings in Sacramento, and it's probably going to be passed on very shortly, and it'll go into effect as the David Stern Walk. So congratulations. Mark Beaver Stadium, the home of the Penn State Nittany Lions football team, remains the second largest college football venue in the country, but changes could be on the way in terms of capacity. What's driving it? Well, the nation's second largest college football stadium is looking at a possible renovation. If it happens, it's very possible the stadium capacity would be reduced probably only by a few thousand, but it could go down. The project is expected to add larger seats, more legroom, better restrooms, modern concession areas, and better entry and exit gates. Uh, Beaver Stadium is one of only eight stadiums in the country that has a capacity over 100,000. All right, Mark, each week we take a look back on some of the significant dates in stadium history. And uh, what do you have on the stack this week? (laughs) This week in 1982, the Atlanta Braves removed Chief Nakahoma from Fulton County Stadium to make room for more outfield seats. Too bad I love the Chief. (laughs) You may remember from the early 1960s that while they were still in Milwaukee and in the early 80s, the Braves mascot occupied a teepee in the bleacher seats. The name Nakahoma was a playful variation on knock a home run. So they (laughs) thought that was cute, and I liked it too. This week in 1990, Roseanne Barr sings the national anthem at the Reds Padres game (laughs) at San Diego's Qualcomm Stadium, and it wasn't pretty. I'll say can you Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Some moment. That was a tone buster if I ever heard one. That was uh, truly horrible. Oh, my goodness. What else do you have here, Mark? Uh, this week, 1992, the Astros began a 26-game road trip to make room for the Republican National Convention held at the Houston Astrodome. And that's just a few items from this state in stadium history. Very good, Mark. Before we go, we also want to point out a new feature on the Stadiums USA website where fans can test their knowledge on stadium and ballpark trivia. This ought to be great. Tell us about it now. 
Well, in order to make the site a lot more interesting for fans that come all the time, we wanted to add something interesting and unique. This is the only place in the world you can test your knowledge of stadium and ballpark trivia. We have a series of questions each week that you can go on and test your knowledge against the experts, and you'll like what you see there. So there's questions about baseball, football, basketball arenas, uh, about people who played in those arenas and events that likely occurred there. So please Log on, look for the quiz icon on the upper right-hand corner, and log on and test your knowledge of stadium information. So I think you'll have fun with it, and you'll enjoy being on the site as usual. And you can't do it, Mark. You have to stay away from that because you already know all the answers. I tend to write some of the questions, so <laughs> wouldn't be fair. Yeah, you can't be included in the mix. Mark, we'll see you next week. Take care, Bill. And Thank- enjoy yourself this summer at Miami Marlins Stadium. Yes, I certainly will. Uh, Mark Medoran, we talk show. Yeah.